Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this episode focuses on key questions in adolescent health that you'll face in the emergency department, including STI screening for symptomatic and asymptomatic patients, expedited partner therapy, emergency contraception, whether or not we actually need a pelvic exam in the ED, and a whole lot more. It features the contributions of three incredibly brilliant and hardworking members of the PCARN Adolescent Working Group. And now to introduce my three guests for this episode. Well, they'll introduce themselves, as you'll see in a moment. Let's start out with Lauren. So my name is Lauren Chernick. Um, I am an assistant professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. My research focuses on improving adolescent sexual and reproductive health in the emergency department setting. And specifically, I design, test, and implement digital interventions to prevent unintended teen pregnancy. And Melissa? My name is Melissa Miller, and I'm an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Emergency Medicine at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. I am a health services researcher, and I focus on innovative delivery of sexual and reproductive health care for adolescents. And last, but certainly not least, Erin Hain. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics within the Division of Emergency Medicine at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. My primary area of research is in adolescent sexual health in the pediatric ED. I specifically want to find ways to utilize the pediatric ED visit to promote contraception and prevent unintended teen pregnancy. This was certainly a team effort, and I first asked Lauren how this group came together. So, Lauren, thank you very much for sitting down and chatting with me today. Um, I wanted to get your overall impression on what your PCARN Adolescent Work Group is doing, um, what you've accomplished, and what some of the overall goals of your group are. So for those of you who don't know, PCARN stands for Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. It's federally funded and consists of seven nodes, making up of 18 sites. Our working group, which is called the PCARN Adolescent Sexual Health Working Group, was starting around 2012 and now includes 25 participants from around the US. Together, we have completed a range of what I think is really interesting projects, such as a PAS workshop entitled Adolescent Sexual Health, building a toolkit for clinical care and research in the ED, collaborating on several NIH-funded studies, some of which we might even talk about here today, as well as the paper that we're going to talk about today and other peer-reviewed manuscripts. Our mission is to advance the provision of adolescent sexual and reproductive health care in the emergency department setting by fostering rigorous multi-center research. And we are always welcoming new members, especially new fellows interested in this line of work. I then turned to Melissa to ask about the methodology of the paper and how it came together, as well as some of the main thematic elements that arose. Any time that I see one of these you know, position papers or papers that define a research agenda, I really like to think about, you know, the people that got together and why did they do it? You know, what questions were they trying to answer? What piqued their interest? Um, I wondered if you could talk a bit about how this came together. Sure. So in general, adolescents have high rates of sexually transmitted infections and unintended pregnancy. And this can result in significant individual, societal, and public health costs. And as you know, by working in the emergency department, we see much higher rates of these risk behaviors that contribute to these poor health outcomes um, among our patients. 
So despite this, we only have a limited body of rigorous ED-based research that can guide us in providing optimal care for our population. So we embarked on this project to develop a research agenda focused specifically on sexual and reproductive health care in the ED setting. And the main technique that you use, and I think it's important for listeners to understand, um, is something called Delphi methodology. And so what is it? Why was it the right choice for you know, coming up with the main research agendas that you did from the study? So consensus methods, which includes the Delphi technique, are particularly useful for synthesizing information when we lack specific evidence on what to do. The Delphi technique involves a systematic method for collecting and analyzing data and then working to develop consensus or agreement among a small group of experts. This is an iterative process that consists of successive rounds of questions and summarized responses. Then the group refines the items and repeats the process until there is a convergence of opinion or you reach a point of diminishing returns. Um, after we generated our list of items with our, within our expert group, we then asked a group of external stakeholders to rate each item for importance. Got it. And what are the main themes that came out of this project? Our final list of questions included 24 research questions that covered a wide range of topics. Um, some questions were pretty specific, like how do we optimize HIV testing across diverse ED settings? And others were more general, such as what are the best practices for supporting adolescent confidentiality in the emergency department? Um, these more general ones could be relevant to many different areas of adolescent sexual health. We need research on several topics specifically. First, we need to understand parental perspectives on this care in the emergency department setting. Second, we need to understand cost effectiveness of ED-based interventions, especially those outside of HIV screening. We also need to understand best practices for implementation and dissemination once effective ED-based interventions are identified. And finally, we need to conduct multi-centered research with geographically diverse populations. It is abundantly clear that there is so much that we still need to learn about the care of adolescents and sexual and reproductive health in the emergency department. I next turn to Aaron to ask about issues of confidentiality. So, Aaron, in, in the ED, we see many teenagers, and I think some visits are straightforward and easy. You know, you're worried about a broken arm. You've got to sew up a laceration. But, you know, there's a lot of confidential and sensitive issues, and I think it can be challenging. You're the first time you're meeting this patient, and you're discussing a sensitive topic, and so I wanted to know if you could tell me about some of the best practices for making sure that you maintain confidentiality when you're seeing an adolescent in the ED. So confidentiality for adolescents in the ED is very complicated and challenging. We kind of all know that states allow for minors to consent to their own sexual health services, but each state is a little bit different and institutional policies are different as well. So it just creates a lot of variability. I think it's challenging in two points. One, when you're seeing the patient in the ED, um, maintaining confidentiality in that visit is challenging, but then it's also challenging after the visit when um, due to billing practices that, that happen. So when you're seeing a patient in the ER, it's important to interview the adolescent alone without parents or friends in the room. And I know that this can be challenging, but it gets easier when we do it consistently. When it's done with every adolescent visit, it gets routine for the doctors, the patients and parents come to expect it. Some best practices that help with this is signs up in your ER that 
notify adolescents and their parents of the confidentiality laws for adolescents. So they um, kind of know what to expect when the physician starts to ask them to leave the room. It can also be helpful when institutions really educate their physicians and frontline staff about their institutional policies. This can empower them and give them the knowledge needed to offer that confidential care. After a visit is also challenging. So institutional billing practices and online patient portals are an opportunity to breach that confidential care that you just established in the ER setting. Explanation of benefits forms um, often provide details of the individual testing, including SDI testing. Several states have laws to try to help this, but the other thing that can be helpful is electronic medical records that allow you to say things as either confidential or non-confidential, and only the non-confidential parts of the chart get, um, get given to parents upon request. Another question that I had, and you know, this harkens back to my days taking the adolescent medicine rotation during residency. And, you know, you do the HEADS exam or whatever that means. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're seeing adolescents in the ED and, you know, maybe they present with, you know, injured wrist, but they can have that, you know, second secret chief complaint. Uh, so what are the, the key things like asymptomatic screening, last sexual encounter? You know, what should we ask any adolescent that comes to the ED? Yeah, exactly. That's a great question. I I see this happen all the time. Patients will come in for something non-sexual health related, but I'll ask the right questions and often they have a lot that they want to talk about. So I think it is important to uh, take a confidential private sexual health history with every adolescent patient. Studies have shown that we as ER physicians aren't very good at this, at doing this routinely, even when the patient comes in with a sexual health-related complaints. So I think it's important to get in the habit of doing it every visit. A thorough sexual history involves several components and has to be asked in a way that the patient can understand it. So these are the the questions that I typically ask. I just, the first one is, have you ever had sex before? I don't typically ask, are you sexually active? Because a lot of people don't know what that means. So I just ask, have you ever had sex before? The second question is, when is the last time that you had sex? Time of last sexual encounter is important because we can potentially intervene to prevent pregnancy if the patients had unprotected sex in the last five days. That would be an indication to offer them emergency contraception. The next thing I typically ask about is is use of contraception and condoms. Asking about contraception and condoms opens the door for a conversation about their pregnancy risk and their STI risk. We know that women are really okay with talking about sexual health stuff in the ED. So once you start asking these questions, it leads into a conversation about the contraception options that may be available to them. And then the last one is history of previous STIs and previous STI testing. This allows you to kind of gauge when their last testing was. And if they either have never been tested or haven't been tested in the appropriate frequency, it then allows you to offer STI testing at that ER visit. I also asked Aaron to comment on both asymptomatic and symptomatic STI screening and testing in the emergency department. I want to know which asymptomatic adolescents should be screened in the ED. That is like the million dollar question right now. I feel like that is the point of much ongoing research. I can tell you what the CDC recommends and kind of some other things that people are doing. So the CDC recommends annual screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia for all sexually active females under 25 years of age. It also recommends annual screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia for sexually active males if they, under the age of 25 if they live in a setting with high prevalence of STIs. HIV testing is also recommended at least once in the lifetime for all sexually active males and females and annually if the patient is high risk. 
So despite these recommendations, many sexually active adolescents have never been tested. I feel like the ER is a critical setting for STI testing as so many adolescents have poor access to primary care and they really use their, the ER as their only source of primary care. Because of this, I think it's important that we at least offer testing based on the CDC guidelines. Therefore, as a general rule, if you have an asymptomatic sexually active adolescent in the ER that has either never been tested or has not had STI testing within the past year, it is very reasonable to offer that in the ED. Now, how exactly we do that, either universal screening or targeted screening, is the important question that researchers are actively working on. Computerized surveys to assess risk and provide decision support to clinicians is another method of screening that has shown some potential in increasing testing among high-risk patients. Our consensus paper that was recently published has two of these questions as identified as the within the top 10 most important questions that we should be looking at as researchers. Those two questions are one, how do we optimize screening for asymptomatic patients in the ED? And two, is universal screening in the ED cost-effective? Aaron then commented on the management of symptomatic patients and the issue of whether or not to treat empirically in the ED or to wait for test results and then to bring them back if the STD tests are positive. When you have somebody that's symptomatic in the ED and you um, are considering empirically treating them for cervicitis related to gonorrhea chlamydia, that's a tough question. And it's, it's tough to know the exact right thing to do. We don't want to undertreat and send somebody out. We also don't want to overtreat, which can lead to antibiotic resistance. So it's a tough question and one that we deal with a lot. The things that help um, the, that can help guide a clinician's decision are a couple. One, your confidence in your clinical diagnosis of cervicitis. How, how much do you really believe this is what's going on with the patient? Two, the risk factors of the patient. And three, the likelihood that that patient is going to follow up and get appropriate treatment if they are positive. So for the things that put a woman at higher risk, it's really age under 25, which should be most of our patients, and any of the following. A new sexual partner, a sexual partner that's currently having sex with other people and a sexual partner with a new STI. Those will put a woman at increased risk and should maybe um, steer you towards empiric treatment in the ED. For lower risk patients, deferring treatment until results are available, as long as you can ensure that the patient is actively, actually going to follow up is a very reasonable option. The other thing that can help you is knowing what your local protocol for results notification and the rates of treatment are. Institutions that have a well-established culture follow-up program may be able to defer presumptive treatment in the ED setting. It's incredibly important to treat the patient and their sexual partners. So I asked Aaron about how this can be accomplished in the emergency department setting. Expedited partner therapy is the practice of treating the sexual partner of somebody with gonorrhea or chlamydia. This can be done either through giving medications or giving a prescription for medications to the patient that you're seeing that the, the patient then gives that uh, prescription or medication to their partner. The provider does not actually have to see the partner at all, which is really nice and is a great way to reduce reinfection rates. Um, most states allow it, 44 states allow it, and the CDC is a great resource to find out if your states allow it. They just recently put up a big map that shows all the states that allow it. Aaron also told me about how the working group is aiming to improve how we deliver expedited partner therapy. We identified that there is a big gap in terms of expedited partner therapy in the ED setting. We don't really know how adolescents in the ED feel about it, how ED providers feel about it. So that's one thing we're currently working on. The other thing um, that there was debate about is the role of EPT within the emergency department setting. And this is mainly because you typically don't know 
definitively if the patient has gonorrhea or chlamydia when you're seeing them in the emergency room. You don't have that point of care testing just yet. So um, we're looking at ways that you can incorporate EPT into your post-visit provider follow-up program and also trying to get some of that background information on how adolescents feel about it and how providers feel about it so that hopefully in the future when more point-of-care testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia becomes available, we'll be able to have that information at hand and start implementing EPT at the time that you have a positive test in the ER setting. Next, let's turn to my discussion with Lauren. We talked about best practices regarding around actually acquiring the STI testing, as well as whether or not a pelvic exam is actually needed, which is a relatively hot button topic in emergency medicine, before finally turning to the issue of whether or not we can actually send patients home from the ED with contraception. Lauren, a lot's changed in the decade and a half that I've been doing this, and I wondered if you can share your thoughts on the best practices for collecting specimens for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and HIV testing in the ED. Yeah, it has changed. The standard has become testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea using the urine nucleic acid amplification test, which has sensitivities and specificities around 90 to 93%. And who knows what will happen in the next few years. Ideally, we would have a point of care test. And I think and hope that over the next 10 years, that becomes the standard. I mean, how great would that be? So I recall when I was a, a medical student, a resident, um, almost every single patient that was being evaluated for potential STIs would get a full pelvic exam with use of a speculum uh, as well as a bimanual examination. That seems to have shifted, at least in terms of the conversation and anecdotally. So who does require a a speculum exam for ED evaluation of STI? Is just a bimanual exam sufficient in some patients? That is such a good question. And there, I agree, there's been a lot of debate about the pelvic exam over the past 10 years or so. Classically, a sexually active female who has abdominal pain should get a bimanual exam to determine if the patient has cervical motion tenderness or adnexal tenderness consistent with pelvic inflammatory disease, and maybe a speculum exam to evaluate for copious discharge or friable cervix consistent with cervicitis or strawberry cervix consistent with trichomonas, or even vesicles from HSV. And of course, there's always that fear that I remember an attending telling me many uh, a long time ago that there could be a foreign body, Um, but I have yet to see that. Um, However, new research shows that the pelvic exam as a test might not actually change management. There was a prospective observational study published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2018 And they show that the sensitivity and specificity of history alone in diagnosing cervicitis in PID was about the same as sensitivity and specificity of history without the pelvic exam. Also, the inter-rater reliability of the physician pelvic exam is not that good and probably provides little more information than testing the urine alone for an STI. But even more than that, the pelvic exam is probably one of the worst experiences for a woman in the ED. It's embarrassing. And adolescent women who present with lower abdominal pain, I think, have a longer length of stay. And I think a big part of that has to do with waiting for who's going to do the pelvic exam and the private room that they need and who's going to be the chaperone. Personally, I think it comes down to that the utility of the pelvic exam just needs to be considered on a case-by-case basis. And given the new data that's coming out, I'm moving towards doing them a little bit less often, but I'm not ready to eliminate them altogether. I want to shift gears for a minute and 
talk about a topic that we often don't think about, but admittedly probably should. You know, the other end of all of this after assessment for illness and STI testing is providing patients the opportunity to perhaps get contraception and preventative care when they present to the emergency department. Can you tell me a bit about contraception and adolescents and what we should be doing uh, when we send them home? Yeah, I've been thinking about this question for over 10 years now. Um, <laughs> and you know, people keep asking me if people, if anyone is prescribing birth control in the emergency department setting. I think we can safely say that the answer to that is pretty much no. Um, there might be a few medical providers out there who do, but I think we can all agree it's by no means a standard of care. I think how to optimize the provision of contraception in the ED leads to many questions. Um, one might say that you should provide contraception only to those who prevent, uh, present for reproductive health or GU complaints. However, we know that the majority of female adolescents in the ER are receptive to learning more about pregnancy prevention, and even providers are agreeable to ED-based sexual health interventions. Plus, many of our patients present for depression, and alcohol misuse, and drug abuse, and violence, and these are high-risk behaviors linked to high-risk sex. But also somehow, like all ED-based intervention, the provision of contraception has to fit neatly within the ED model. It needs to be brief. It can't take hours of patient time. It should be theory-based on a conceptual model that increases the chance of it being effective. It should be, reproduci it should be reproducible. What works in my ED might not work in others, which leads it to being cost-efficient as to make it reproducible. And of course, it can't impede with patient flow and therefore, I think it needs to minimize the medical provider involvement. Um, we do have an ER that we need to run. On the spectrum, as a priority, on the spectrum of all the other preventative health measures that we can do for our patients, might that be obesity to violence to alcohol misuse? And remember, this just isn't about STI testing and treatment. It's also about preventing unwanted pregnancy. So finally, I asked Lauren about some of the existing research and the work that still needs to be done to reduce pregnancy risk. There are small single-site studies that have demonstrated feasibility and acceptability of brief interventions, possibly using text messaging or personalized counseling as a way to reduce pregnancy risk, and have also improved access to both NED and referral-based contraception. But large studies to evaluate the efficacy and cost-effectiveness of these types of interventions have not been conducted. And virtually no ED-based work describes how to engage males, parents, other trusted adults in pregnancy prevention efforts that might take place in the emergency department, despite there being rich literature from other settings describing the important role these people play in reducing sexual risk-taking. There are also additional knowledge gaps involving provider and system-level issues such as how this work may fit into various provider roles or how any intervention can fit into the ED workflow and how we can improve the completion of a reproductive health referral. Thank you all. That's it for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hopefully you found this relatively deep dive into some of the key topics facing adolescent health in the emergency department illuminating. In summary, we learned about STI treatment and screening, addressing concerns related to unwanted pregnancies, expedited partner therapy, whether or not you actually need to do a pelvic exam, and a lot more. These three women will be at the forefront of answering some of these questions over the next few years, 
and I'd encourage you all to reach out to them if you have any more questions. If you want to check out more great educational content, go to PEMblog.com. Follow me on Twitter at PEMtweets and check out the Facebook page. And if you've got a moment, I would definitely appreciate feedback. This could be a comment on PEMblog, a review on your favorite podcast site, or even a direct message on Twitter or a comment on the Facebook page. Any and all feedback is welcome and will help me continue to deliver great podcast content focused on care of children and adolescents in the emergency department. Until next time, for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. Take care.